Part One of Make Mine Homogenized by Rick Raphael. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Greg Marguerite. Part One of Make Mine Homogenized by Rick Raphael. Shoo! Hetty Thompson cried, waving her battered old felt hat at the clucking cluster of hens eddying around her legs as she plowed through the flock towards the chicken house. Scat! You! Solomon! She called out, directing her words at the bobbing comb of the big rooster strutting at the edge of the mob. Don't just stand there like a satisfied cowhand after a night in Reno. Get those noisy females out of my way! She batted at the hens, and they scattered with angry squawks of protest. Hetty paused in the doorway of the chicken house to allow her eyes to become accustomed to the cool gloom after the bright glare of the ranch yard. She could feel the first trickles of sweat forming under the man's shirt she was wearing as the hot early morning Nevada sun beat down on her back in the doorway. Moving carefully but quickly through the nests, she reached and groped for the eggs she knew would be found in the scattered straw. As she placed each find carefully in the bucket she carried, her lips moved in a soundless count. When she had finished, she straightened up and left the chicken house, her face reflecting minor irritation. Again the hens swirled about her, hoping for the handfuls of cracked corn she usually tossed them. On the other side of the yard, Solomon stepped majestically along the edge of the vegetable garden, never crossing the hoed line separating garden from yard. "'You'd better stay over there, you no-account Lothario,' Hetty growled. Five eggs short this morning, and all you do is act like you were just the business agent for this bunch of fugitives from a dumpling pot.' Solomon cocked his head and stared Hetty down. She paused at the foot of the back porch steps and threw the rooster a final remark. You don't do any better than this. You're liable to wind up in that pot yourself. Solomon gave a scornful cluck. Better still, I'll get me a young rooster in here and take over your job. Solomon let out a squawk and took out at a dead run, herding three hens before him towards the chicken house. With a satisfied smile of triumph, Hetty climbed the steps and crossed to the kitchen door. She turned and looked back across the yard toward the barn and corrals. Barney! Hetty yelled. Ain't you finished with that milkin' yet? Coming now, Miss Thompson, came the reply from the barn. Hetty let the screen door slam behind her as she walked into the kitchen and placed the bucket of eggs on the big work table. She had her arm up to wipe her moist forehead on the sleeve of her shirt when she spotted the golden egg lying in the middle of the others in the galvanized bucket. She froze in the arm-lifted position for several seconds, staring at the dully glowing egg. Then she slowly reached out and picked it up. It was slightly heavier than a regular egg, but for the dull gold-bronze metallic appearance of the shell looked just like any of the other twenty-odd eggs in the bucket. She was still holding it in the palm of her hand when the kitchen door again slammed and the handyman limped into the room. He carried two pails of milk across the kitchen and set them down near the sink. "'What you looking at, Miss Thompson?' Barney Hatfield asked. Hetty frowned at the egg in her hand without answering. Barney limped around the side of the table for a closer look. Sunlight streaming through the kitchen windows glinted on the shell of the odd egg. Barney's eyes grew round. Now ain't that something? He whispered in awe. Hetty stared as though someone had snapped their fingers in front of her staring eyes. Her normal look of practical dubiousness returned. Huh she snorted. Even had me fooled for a second. Something wrong with this egg, but it sure as shootin' ain't gold. One of them fool hens must have been peckin' in the fertilizer storeroom and got herself an overdose of some of them minerals in that stuff. What are you staring at, you old fool? She glared at Barney. It ain't gold. Eddie laid the egg at one side of the table. 
She walked to the sink and took a clean two-gallon milk can from the drain board and set it in the sink to fill it from the pails of rich, frothy milk Barney had brought in the pails. "'Sally come fresh this morning, Miss Thompson,' he said. "'Got herself a real fine little bull-calf.' Hetty looked at the two pails of milk. "'Well, where's the rest of the milk, then?' "'That's Queenie's milk,' Barney said. "'Sally's is still out on the porch.' Well, bring it in before the sun clabbers it. Can't, Barney said. Hetty swung around and glared at him. What do you mean you can't? You suddenly come down with the glanders? No, it's just that Sally's milk ain't no good, he replied. A frown spread over Hetty's face as she hoisted one of the milk pails and began pouring it into the can in the sink. What's wrong with it, Barney? Sally seem sick or something? she asked. Barney scratched his head. I don't rightly know, Miss Thompson. That milk looks all right, or at least almost all right. It's kind of thin and don't have no foam like you'd expect milk to have, but mostly it sure don't smell right, and it danged well don't taste right. Phooey. He made a face at the memory of the taste. I stuck my finger in it when it looked kind of queer and took a taste. It sure tasted lousy. You probably been carrying that mangy old horse of yours before you went to milkin', Hetty snorted, and tasted his cancerous old hide on your fingers. I've told you for the last time to wash your hands before you go to milking them cows. I didn't pay no eighteen hundred dollars for that prize registered Guernsey just to have you give her bag fever with your dirty hands. That ain't so, Miss Thompson. Barney cried indignantly. I did, too, wash my hands. Good, too. I wasn't near my horse this morning. That milk just weren't no good. Hetty finished pouring the milk into the cans, and after putting the cans in the refrigerator, wiped her hands on her jeans and went out onto the porch, Barney trailing behind her. She bent over and sniffed at the two milk pails setting beside the door. Phew! she exclaimed. It sure does smell funny. Hand me that dipper, Barney." Barney reached for a dipper hanging on a nail beside the kitchen door. Hetty dipped out a small quantity of the milk, sipped, straightened up with a jerk, and spewed the milk out into the yard. Yuck! she spluttered. That tastes worse than diesel oil. She stirred distastefully at the swirling, flat-looking liquid in the pails, and then turned back to the kitchen. I never saw the like of it, she exclaimed. Chickens come out with some kind of sorry-looking egg, and now in the same morning an eighteen-hundred-dollar registered fresh Guernsey gives out hogwash instead of milk. She stared thoughtfully across the yard at the distant mountains, now shimmering in the hot mid-morning sun. Guess we could swill the hogs with that milk rather than throw it out, Barney. I never seen anything them Dorox wouldn't eat. When you get ready to put the other swill in the cooker, toss that milk in with it and cook it up for the hogs." Hetty went back into her kitchen, and Barney turned and limped across the yard to the tractor shed. He pulled the brim of his sweat-stained Stetson over his eyes and squinted south over the heat-dancing sage and sparse grasslands of Circle T range. Dust devils were pirouetting in the hazy distance towards the mountains, forming a corridor leading to the ranch. A dirt road led out of the yard and crossed an oiled county road about five miles south of the ranch. The county road was now the only link the Circle T had to the cattle shipping pens at Carson City. The dirt road arrowed south across the range, but fifteen miles from the ranch a six-strand new barbed-wire fence cut the road. A white metal sign with raised letters proclaimed, Road Closed, U.S. Government Military Reservation. Restricted area. Danger. Perigree. Keep out. The taut bands of wire stretched east and west of the road for more than twenty miles in each direction, with duplicates of the metal sign hung on the fence every five hundred yards. Then the wires turned south for nearly a hundred miles, etching in skin-blistering sun-heated strands the outlines of the Nevada atomic testing grounds at Frenchman's Flat. When the wire first went up, Hetty and her ranching neighbors had screamed to high heaven and high congressmen about the loss of the road and range. The fence stayed up. 
Now they had gotten used to the idea, and had even grown blasé about the frequent nuclear blasts that rattled the desert floor sixty miles from ground zero. Barney built a fire under the big, smoke-blackened cauldron Hetty used for cooking the hog swill. Dale Hamilton, the county agent, had given Hetty a long talk of the dangers of feeding the pigs raw, uncooked, and possibly contaminated garbage. When Hamilton got graphic about what happened to people who ate pork from such hogs, Hetty turned politely green and had Barney set up the cooking cauldron. After dumping the kitchen slops into the pot, Barney hiked back across the yard to get the two pails of bad milk. Hetty was sitting at the kitchen table, putting the eggs into plastic refrigerator dishes when the hog slop exploded in a whooshing roar followed a split second later by an even louder blast that rocked the ranch buildings. The eggs flew across the room as the lid of the slop cauldron came whistling through the kitchen window in a blizzard of flying glass and buried itself edgewise in the wall over the stove. Hetty slammed backwards head first into a heap of shattered eggs. A torrent of broken plaster and crockery fragments rained on her stunned figure. Through dazed eyes she saw a column of purple-reddish fire rising from the yard. A woman who has been thrown twenty-three times from a pitching bronco and kicked five times in the process doesn't stay dazed long. Pawing, dripping egg yolks and plaster from her face, Hetty Thompson struggled to her feet and staggered to the kitchen door. "'Barney!' she bawled. "'You all right?' The column of weird-colored flame had quickly died, and only a few flickering pieces of wood from the cauldron fire burned in scattered spots about the yard. Of the cauldron there wasn't a sign. "'Barney!' she cried anxiously. "'Where are you?' "'Here I am, Miss Thompson.' Barney's blackened face peered around the corner of the tractor shed. "'You okay, Miss Thompson?' "'What in thunderation happened?' Hetty called out. You try to build a fire with dynamite for kindling? Shaken but otherwise unharmed, Barney painfully limped over to the ranch house porch. Don't ask me what happened, ma'am, he said. I just poured that milk into the slop pot and then put the lid back on and walked off. I heard this big whoosh and turned around in time to see the lid fly off and the kettle begin to tip into the fire and then there was one hell of a blast. It knocked me clean under the tractor shed. He fumbled in his pocket for a cigarette and shakily lighted it. Hetty peered out over the yard and then, looking up, gasped. Perched like a rakish derby hat on the arm of the towering pump windmill was the slop cauldron. Well, I'll be, Hetty Thompson said. You sure you didn't pour gas on that fire to make it burn faster, Barney Hatfield? She barked at the handyman. No siree, Barney declaimed loudly. There weren't no gas anywhere near that fire. Only thing I poured out was that there bad milk. He paused and scratched his head. Reckon that funny milk could have done that, Miss Thompson? There ain't no gas made what'll blow up nor burn so funny as that did. Hetty snorted. Who ever heard of milk blowing up, you old idiot? A look of doubt spread. You put all that milk in there? No, just the one bucket. Barney pointed to the other pail beside the kitchen door, now half empty and standing in a pool of liquid, sloshed out by the blast wave. Hetty studied the milk pail for a minute, and then resolutely picked it up and walked out into the yard. Only one way to find out, she said. Get me a tin can, Barney. She poured about two tablespoons of the milk into the bottom of the can while Barney collected a small pile of kindling. Removing the milk pail to a safe distance, Hetty lighted the little pile of kindling, set the tin can atop the burning wood, and scooted several yards away to join Barney, who had been watching from afar. In less than a minute a booming whoosh sent a miniature column of purple gaseous flame spouting from the can. Well, what do you know about that? Hetty exclaimed wonderingly. The can had flown off the fire a few feet, but didn't explode. Hetty went back to the milk pail, and, collecting less than a teaspoonful in the water dipper, walked to the fire, standing as far back as she could and still reach over the flames. 
She carefully sprinkled a few drops of the liquid directly into the fire and then jumped back. Miniature balls of purple flame erupted from the fire before she could move. Pieces of flaming kindling flew in all directions, and one slammed Barney across the back of the neck and sent a shower of sparks down his back. The handyman let out a yowl of pain and leaped for the watering trough beside the corral, smoke trailing behind him. Hetty thoughtfully surveyed the scene of her experiment from beneath raised eyebrows. Then she grunted with satisfaction, picked up the remaining milk in the pail, and went back to the ranch house. Barney climbed drippingly from the horse trough. The kitchen was a mess. Splattered eggs were over everything, and broken glass, crockery, and plaster covered the floor, table, and counters. Only one egg remained unbroken. That was the golden egg. Hetty picked it up and shook it. There was a faint sensation of something moving inside the tough, metallic-looking shell. It shook almost as a normal egg might, but not quite. Hetty set up the strange object on a shelf and turned to the task of cleaning up. Johnny Culpepper, the ranch's other full-time hand and Hetty's assistant manager, drove the pickup into the yard just before noon. He parked in the shade of the huge cottonwood tree beside the house and bounced out with an armload of mail and newspapers. Inside the kitchen door he dumped the mail on the sideboard and started to toss his hat on a wall hook when he noticed the condition of the room. Hetty was dishing out fragrant warmed-over stew into three lunch dishes on the table. She had cleaned up the worst of the mess and changed into a fresh shirt and jeans. Her iron-gray hair was pulled back in a still-damp knot at the back after a hasty scrubbing to get out the gooey mixture of eggs and plaster. "'Holy smoke, Hetty,' Johnny said. "'What happened here? Your pressure kettle blow up?' His eyes widened when he saw the lid of the slop cauldron still embedded in the wall over the stove. His gaze tracked back and took in the shattered window. "'Had an accident,' Hetty said matter-of-factly, putting the last dishes on the table. "'Tell you about it when we eat. Now you go wash up and call Barney. I want you to put some new glass in that window this afternoon and get that danged lid out of the wall.' Curious and puzzled, Johnny washed at the kitchen sink and then walked to the door to shout for Barney. On the other side of the yard, Barney released the pump windmill clutch. While Johnny watched from the porch, the weight of the heavy slop cauldron slowly turned the big windmill, and as the arm adorned by the kettle rotated downward, the cast-iron pot slipped off and fell to the hard-packed ground with a booming clang. Well, for the love of Pete! Johnny said in amazement. Hey, Barney, time to eat. Come on in. Barney trudged across the yard and limped into the kitchen to wash. They sat down to the table. Now, just what have you two been up to? Johnny demanded as they attacked the food-laden dishes. Between mouthfuls, the two older people gave him a rundown on the morning's mishaps. The more Johnny heard, the wilder it sounded. Johnny had been part of the Circle T since he was ten years old. That was the year Hetty jerked him out of the hands of a Carson City policeman who had been in the process of hauling the ragged and dirty youngster to the station house for swiping a box of cookies from a grocery store. Johnny's mother was dead, and his father, once the town's best mechanic, had turned into the town's best drunk. During the times his father slept one off, either in the shack the man and boy occupied at the edge of town, or in the local lockup, Johnny ran wild. Hetty took the boy to the ranch for two reasons. Mainly it was the empty ache in her heart since the death of Big Jim Thompson a year earlier following a ranch tractor accident that had crushed his chest. The other was her well-hidden disappointment that she had been childless. Hetty's bluff, weathered features would never admit to loneliness or heartache. Beneath the surface, all the warmth and love she had went out to the scarred but belligerent youngster. But she never let much affection show through until Johnny had become part of her life. Johnny's father died the following winter after pneumonia brought on by a night of lying drunk in the cold shack during a blizzard. It was accepted without legal formality around the county that Johnny automatically became Hetty's boy. 
She cuffed and comforted him into a gawky, happy adolescence, pushed him through high school, and then, at eighteen, sent him off to the University of California at Davis to learn what the pundits of the United States Department of Agriculture had to say about animal husbandry and ranch management. When Hetty and Barney had finished their recitation, Johnny wore a look of frank disbelief. If I didn't know you two better, I'd say you both been belting the bourbon bottle while I was gone. But this I've got to see. They finished lunch, and after Hetty stacked the dishes in the sink, trooped out to the porch where Johnny went through the same examination of the milk. Again a little fire was built in the open safety of the yard, and a few drops of the liquid used to produce the same technicolored combustive effects. Well, what do you know? Johnny exclaimed. A four-hundred-octane Guernsey cow! Johnny kicked out the fire and carried the milk pail to the tractor shed. He parked the milk on a workbench and gathered up an armful of tools to repair to the blast-torn kitchen. He started to leave, but when the milk bucket caught his eye, he unloaded the tools and fished around under the workbench for an empty five-gallon gasoline can. He poured the remaining milk into the closed gasoline can and replaced the cap. Then he took his tools and a pane of glass from an overhead rack and headed for the house. Hetty came into the kitchen as he was prying at the cauldron lid in the wall. "'You're going to make a worse mess before you're through,' she said. So I'll just let you finish and then clean up the whole mess afterwards. I got other things to do anyway." She jammed a man's old felt hat on her head and left the house. Barney was unloading the last of the supplies Johnny had brought from Carson in the truck. Hetty shielded her eyes against the metallic glare of the afternoon sun. Getting pretty dry, Barney. Throw some salt blocks in the pickup and I'll run them down to the south pasture and see if the pumps need to be turned on. And you might get that wind pump going in case we get a little breeze later this afternoon. But in any case, better run the yard pump for an hour or so and get some water up into the tank. I'll be back as soon as I take a ride through the pasture. I want to see how that Angus yearling is coming that I picked out for house beef." A few minutes later Hetty and the pickup disappeared behind a hot swirl of yellow dust. Barney ambled to the cool pump house beneath the towering windmill. An electric motor powered either from the REA line or from direct current stored in a bank of wet cell batteries, bulked large in the small shed. To the left, a small gasoline-driven generator supplied standby power if no wind was blowing to turn the arm-driven generator or if the lines happened to be down, as was often the case in winter. Barney threw the switch to start the pump motor. Nothing happened. He reached for the light switch to test the single bulb hanging from a cord to the ceiling. Same nothing. Muttering darkly to himself, he changed the pump engine leads to DC current and closed the switch to the battery bank. The engine squeaked and whined slowly, but when Barney threw in the clutch to drive the pump, it stopped and just hummed faintly. Then he opened the AC fuse box. Johnny had freed the cauldron lid and was knocking out bits of broken glass from the kitchen window frame before putting in the new glass when Barney limped into the room. That pot busted the pump house electric line, Johnny, when it went sailing, he said. Miss Thompson wants to pump up some water, and on top of that the batteries are down. You got time to fix the line? Johnny paused and surveyed the kitchen. I'm going to be working here for another hour anyway, so Hetty can clean up when she gets back. Why don't you fire up the gasoline kicker for now, and I'll fix the line when I get through here," he said. Okay. Barney nodded and turned to leave. Oh, forgot to ask you. Ms. Thompson tell you about the egg? What egg? Johnny asked. The gold one. Johnny grinned. Sure, and I saw the goose when I came in, and your jack in the windmill is your beanstalk. Go climb it, Barney, and cut out the fairy tales. Nah, Johnny, Barney protested. I ain't kidding. Miss Thompson got a gold egg from the hens this morning. At least, it looks kinda like gold, but she says it ain't. See? Here it is. He reached into the cupboard where Hetty had placed the odd egg. He walked over and handed it to Johnny, who was sitting on the sink drain counter to work on the shattered window. 
The younger man turned the egg over in his hand. It sure feels funny. Wonder what the inside looks like. He banged the egg gently against the edge of the drainboard. When it didn't crack, he slammed it harder, but then realizing that if it did break suddenly it would squish onto the floor, he put the egg on the counter and tapped it with his hammer. The shell split and a clear liquid poured out onto the drainboard, thin and clear, not glutinous like a normal egg white. A small reddish ball, obviously the yolk, rolled across the board, fell into the sink, and broke into powdery fragments. A faint ether-like odor arose from the mess. I guess Miss Thompson was right, Barney said. She said that a hen must have been pecking in the fertilizer chemicals. Never seen no egg like that before. Yeah, Johnny said puzzledly. Well, so much for that. He tossed the golden shell to one side and turned back to his glasswork. Barney left for the pump house. Inside the pump house, Barney opened the gasoline engine tank and poked a stick down to test the fuel level. The stick came out almost dry. With another string of mutterings, he limped across the yard to the tractor shed for a gas can. Back in the pump house, he poured the engine tank full, set the gas can aside, and then, after priming the carburetor, yanked on the starter pull rope. The engine caught with a sputtering roar and began racing madly. Barney lunged for the throttle and cut it back to idle, but even then the engine was running at near full speed. Then Barney noticed the white fluid running down the side of the engine tank and dripping from the spout of the gasoline can. He grinned broadly, cut in the pump clutch, and hurriedly limped across the yard to the kitchen. Hey, Johnny, he called. Did you put that milk of Sally's into a gas can? Johnny leaned through the open kitchen window. Yeah, why? Well, I just filled the kicker with it by accident, and man, you ought to hear that engine run, Barney exclaimed. Come see. Johnny swung his legs through the window and dropped lightly to the yard. The two men were halfway across the yard from the pump house when a loud explosion ripped the building. Parts of the pump engine flew through the thin walls like shrapnel. A billowing cloud of purple smoke welled out of the ruptured building as Johnny and Barney flattened themselves against the hot, packed earth. Flames licked up from the pump shed. The men ran for the horse trough and, grabbing pails of water, raced for the pump house. The fire had just started into the wooden walls of the building, and a few splashes of water doused the flames. They eyed the ruins of the gasoline engine. Holy cow! Johnny exclaimed. That stuff blew the engine right apart! He gazed up at the holes in the pump house roof blew the cylinders and head right out the roof. Holy cow! Barney was pawing at the pump and electric motor. Didn't seem to hurt the pump none. Guess we better get that electric line fixed, though, now that we ain't got no more gas engine. The two men went to work on the pump motor. The broken line outside the building was spliced, and twenty minutes later Johnny threw the A.C. switch. The big electric motor spun into action and settled into a workmanlike hum. The overhead light dimmed briefly when the pump load was thrown on, and then the slip-slap sound of the pump filled the shed. They watched and listened for a couple of minutes. Assured that the pump was working satisfactorily, they left the wrecked pump house. Johnny was carrying the gasoline can of milk. Good thing you set this off to one side where it didn't get hit and go off he said. The way this stuff reacts, we'd be without a pump, engine, or windmill if it had. Barney, be a good guy and finish putting in that glass for me, will you? I've got the frame all ready to putty. I've got me some fiddlin' and figurin' to do. Johnny angled off to the tractor and tool shed and disappeared inside. Barney limped into the kitchen and went to work on the window glass. From the tractor shed came the sounds of an engine spluttering, racing, backfiring, and then just idling. When Hetty drove back into the ranch yard an hour or so later, Johnny was rodeoing the farm tractor around the yard like a teenager, his face split in a wide grin. She parked the truck under the tree as Johnny drove the tractor alongside and gunned the engine, still grinning. What in tarnation is this all about? Hetty asked as she climbed down from the pickup. 
Know what this tractor's running on? Johnny shouted over the noise of the engine. Of course I do, you young idiot, she exclaimed. It's gasoline. Wrong, Johnny yelled triumphantly. It's running on Sally's milk. The next morning Johnny had mixed up two hundred gallons of Sally's fuel and had the pickup, tractor, cattle truck, and his 1958 Ford and Hetty's 59 Chevrolet station wagon all purring on the mixture. Mixing it was a simple process after he experimented and found the right proportions. One quart of pure Sally's milk to one hundred gallons of water. He had used the two remaining quarts in the gasoline can to make the mixture, but by morning Sally had graced the ranch with five more gallons of the pure concentrate. Johnny carefully stored the concentrated milk in a scoured fifty-five-gallon gasoline drum in the tool shed. We've hit a gold mine, he told Hetty exultantly. We're never going to have to buy gasoline again. On top of that, at the rate Sally's turning this stuff out, we can start selling it in a couple of weeks and make a fortune. That same morning, Hetty collected three more of the golden eggs. Set them on the shelf, Johnny said, and when we go into town next time, I'll have Dale look at them and maybe tell us what those hens have been into. I'll probably go into town again Saturday for the mail. But when Saturday came, Johnny was hobbling around the ranch on a wrenched ankle, suffered when his horse stumbled in a gopher hole and tossed him. You stay off that leg, Hetty ordered. I'll go into town for the mail. Them girls can just struggle along without your romancing this week." Johnny made a wry face but obeyed orders. "'Barney!' Hetty bawled. "'Bring me a quarter of beef out of the cooler.' Barney stuck his head out of the barn and nodded. "'I've been promising some good beef to Judge Hatcher for a month of Sundays now,' Hetty said to Johnny. If you're going to stop by the courthouse, how about taking those crazy eggs of yours into the county agent's office and leave them there for analysis?" Johnny suggested. He hobbled into the kitchen to get the golden eggs. Barney arrived with the chilled quarter of beef wrapped in burlap. He tossed it in the bed of the pickup and threw more sacks over it to keep it cool under the broiling mid-morning sun. Johnny came out with the eggs in a light cardboard box stuffed with crumpled newspapers. He wedged the box against the side of beef in the forward corner of the truck bed. One more thing, Hetty, he said. I've got a half a drum of drain oil in the tractor shed that I've been meaning to trade in for some gearbox lube that Willie Simmons said he'd let me have. Can you drop it off at his station and pick up the grease? Throw it on, Hetty said, while I go change into some town clothes. Johnny started to hobble down the porch steps when Barney stopped him. I'll get it, boy. You stay off that ankle." Barney climbed into the pickup and drove it around to the tractor shed. He spotted two oil drums in the gloomy shed. He tilted the nearest one and felt liquid slosh near the halfway mark, then rolled it out the door. Barney heaved it into the truck bed, stood it on end against the cab, and drove the pickup back to the ranch house door as Hetty came out wearing clean jeans and a bright flowered blouse. Her gray hair was tucked in a neat bun beneath a blocked Stetson hat. She climbed into the truck, waved to the two men, and drove out the yard. As she bumped over the cattle guard at the gate, the wooden plug that Johnny had jury-rigged to cork the gasoline drum with its twenty-gallon load of pure Sally's milk bounced out. A small geyser of white fluid shot out of the drum as she hit another bump, and then the pickup went jolting down the ranch road. Little splashes of Sally's milk sloshing out with each bump and forming a pool on the bottom of the truck. When Hetty cowboyed onto the county road, the drum tipped dangerously and then bounced back onto its base. This time a fountain of milk geysered out and splashed heavily into the box of golden eggs. Hetty drove on, but not for long. With a ranchwoman's disregard for watching the road, Hetty constantly scanned the nearby rangelands where small bands of her cherished black Angus grazed. She prided herself on the fact that despite her sixty years, her eyes were still sharp enough to spot a worm-ridden cow at a thousand yards. Two miles after she turned onto the county road, which ran through Circle T rangeland, her roving gaze took in a cow and a calf on a hillside a few hundred yards south of the road. 
Hetty slowed the pickup to fifty miles an hour and squinted into the sun. She grunted with satisfaction and slammed on the brakes. The truck swerved and skidded to a halt at the left side of the deserted road. Hetty leaped from the truck and began a fast walk up the hillside for a closer look at the cow and calf. She never heard the dull thump of the milk drum tipping onto the edge of the truck bed. Hetty topped the hill and walked slowly towards the cow and calf that were now edging away from her. As she eased down the far side of the hill out of sight of the pickup, a steady stream of Sally's milk was engulfing the box of golden eggs. A minute later, the reduced contents caused the drum to shift and slip. It fell onto the eggs, cracking a half-dozen. The earth split open, and the world around Hetty erupted in a roaring inferno of purple-red fire and ear-shattering sound. The rolling concussion swept Hetty from her feet and tumbled her into a dry-wash gully at the base of the hill. The gully saved her life as the sky-splitting shock wave rolled over her. Stunned and deafened, she flattened herself under a slight overhang. The rolling blast rocked ranches and towns for more than one hundred miles, and the ground wave triggered the seismographs at the University of California nearly two hundred miles away, and at UCLA four hundred miles distant. Tracking and testing instruments went wild along the entire length of the AEC atomic test grounds, a mere sixty miles south of the smoking, gaping hole that marked the end of the Circle T pickup truck. In a direct line, the ranch house was about eight miles from the explosion. Johnny was lounging in Hetty's favorite rocking chair on the wide back veranda, lighting a cigarette, and Barney was perched on the porch railing when the sky was blotted out by the dazzling violet light of the blast. They were blinking in frozen amazement when the shock wave smashed into the ranch, flattening the flimsier buildings and buckling the side and roof of the steel-braced barn. Every window on the place blew out in a storm of deadly glass shards. The rolling ground wave in the wake of the shock blast rocked and bounced the solid timber and adobe main house. The concussion hit Johnny like a fist, pinwheeling him backwards in the rocker against the wall of the house. It caught Barney like a sack of sodden rags and flung him atop the dazed and semi-conscious younger man. The first frightened screams of the horses in the barns and corrals were mingling with the bawling of the heifers in the calf-pens when the sound of the explosion caught up with the devastation of the shock and ground waves. Like the reverberation of a thousand massed cannon firing at once, the soul-searing sound rumbled out of the desert and boiled with almost tangible density into the shattered ranch-yard. It flattened the feebly stirring men on the porch and then thundered on in a tidal wave of noise. Barney moaned and rolled off the tangle of porch rocker and stunned youth beneath him. Johnny lay dazed another second or two and then began struggling to his feet. Hetty, he croaked, pointing wildly to the south where a massive dirty column of purple smoke and fire rose skyward like the stem of a monstrous and malignant toadstool. Hetty's out there. He stumbled from the porch and broke into a staggering run to the pile of broken planks that seconds ago had been the tractor shed. As he crossed the yard, a great gust of wind whipped back from the north, pumping clouds of dry, dusty earth before it. The force of the wind almost knocked the bruised and shaken Johnny from his feet once again as it swept back over the ranch in the direction of the great pillar of purple smoke. Implosion! Johnny's mind registered. He tore at the stack of loose boards leaning against the station wagon, flinging them fiercely aside in his frantic efforts to free the vehicle. Barney limped up to join him, and a minute later they had cleared away into the wagon. Johnny squeezed into the front seat and drove it back from under more leaning boards. Three of the side windows were smashed, but the windshield was intact, except for a small, starred crack in the safety glass. Clear of the debris, Barney opened the opposite door and slid in beside Johnny. Dirt spun from beneath the wheels of the car as he slammed his foot to the floor and raced towards the smoke column that now towered more than a mile and a half into the air. Beneath her protective overhang, Hetty stirred and moaned feebly. Twin rivulets of dark blood trickled from her nostrils. Thick dust was settling on the area, and she coughed and gasped for breath. 
On the opposite side of the hill, a vast, torn crater, nearly a hundred feet across and six to ten feet deep, smoked like a stirring volcano and gave off a strange, pungent odor of ether. Johnny Culpepper's dramatic charge to the rescue was no more dramatic than the reaction in a dozen other places in Nevada and California particularly sixty miles south where a small army of military and scientific men were preparing for an atomic underground shot when the circle t pickup vanished the shock wave rippled across the desert floor flowed around the mountains and tunneled into frenchman's flat setting off every shock measuring instrument then came the ground wave rolling through the earth like a gopher through a garden ditto for ground wave measuring devices Lastly, the sound boomed into the startled scientists and soldiers like the pounding of great timpani under the vaulted dome of the burning sky. On mountaintop observation posts, technicians turned unbelieving eyes north to the burgeoning pillar of smoke and dust, then yelped and swung optical and electrical instruments to bear on the fantastic column. In less than fifteen minutes, the test under preparation had been canceled, all equipment secured and the first assault waves of scientists, soldiers, intelligence, and security men were racing north behind white-suited and sealed radiation detection teams cradling Geiger counters in their arms like submachine guns. Telephone lines were jammed with calls from Atomic Energy Commission field officials reporting the phenomenon to Washington and calling for aid from West Coast and New Mexico AEC bases. Jet fighters at Nellis Air Force Base near Las Vegas were scrambled and roared north over the ground vehicles to report visual conditions near the purple pillar of power. The Associated Press Office in San Francisco had just received word of the quake recorded by the seismograph at Berkeley when a staffer on the other side of the desk answered a call from the A.P. Stringer in Carson City, reporting the blast and mighty cloud in the desert sky. One fast look at the map showed that the explosion was well north of the AEC testing ground limits. The Carson City Stringer was ordered to get out to the scene on the double and hold the fort while reinforcements of staffers and photographers were flown from Frisco. Before any of the official or civil agencies had swung into action, the Circle T station wagon had rocketed off the ranch road and turned onto the oiled country highway, leading both to Carson City and the now-expanding but less dense column of smoke. Johnny hunched over the wheel and peered through the thickening pall of smoke and dust, reluctant to ease off his breakneck speed, but knowing that they had to find Hetty, if she were alive. Neither man had said a word since the wagon raced from the ranch yard. There was no valid reason to associate the explosion with Hetty, yet instinctively and naggingly Johnny knew that somehow Hetty was involved. Barney, still ignorant of his error of the oil drums, just clung to his seat and prayed for the best. The dust was almost too thick to see, forcing Johnny to slow the station wagon as they penetrated deeper into the base of the smoke column. Hiding under his frantic concern for Hetty was the half-formed thought that the whole thing was an atomic explosion and that he and Barney were heading into sure radiation deaths. His lodger nudged at the thought and said, If it were atomic, you started dying back on the porch, so might as well play the hand out. A puff of wind swirled the dust up away from the road as the station wagon came up to the smoking crater. Johnny slammed on the brakes, and he and Barney jumped from the car to stand awestruck at the edge of the hole. The dust-deadened air muffled Johnny's sobbing exclamation. Dear God! They walked slowly around the ragged edges of the crater. Barney bent down and picked a tiny metallic fragment from the pavement. He stared at it, and then tapped Johnny on the arm and handed it to him wordlessly. It was a twisted piece of body steel, bright at its torn edges and coated with the scarlet enamel that had been the color of the Circle T pickup. Johnny's eyes filled with tears, and he shoved the little scrap of metal in his pocket. Let's see what else we can find, Barney. The two men began working a slow search of the area in ever-widening circles from the crater that led them finally up and over the top of the little hill to the south of the road. Fifteen minutes later they found Hetty 
and ten minutes after that the wiry, resilient ranchwoman was sitting between them on the seat of the station wagon, explaining how she had happened to be clear of the pickup when the blast occurred. The suspicion that had been growing in Johnny's mind, now brought into the open by his relief at finding Hetty alive and virtually unhurt, boomed into full flower. Barney, Johnny asked softly, which oil drum did you put in the back of the pickup? The facts were falling into place like the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle when the Carson City reporter, leading a caravan of cars and emergency vehicles from town by a good ten minutes and beating the AEC and military teams by twenty minutes, found the Circle T trio sitting in the station wagon at the lip of the now faintly smoldering crater. A half hour later, the AP man in San Francisco picked up the phone. I've just come back from that explosion, the Carson City stringer said. The A.P. man put his hand over the phone and called across the desk. Get ready for a ninety-five first lead blast. Okay, the San Francisco desk man said. Let's have it. He tucked the phone between chin and shoulder and poised over his typewriter. Well, there's a crater more than one hundred feet across and ten feet deep, the Carson City Stringer dutifully recounted. The scene is on County Road 38, about forty miles east of here, and the blast rocked Carson City and caused extensive breakage for miles around. What caused it? The AP man asked as he pounded out a lead. A lady at the scene said her milk and eggs blew up, the Carson City stringer said. Ten miles south, the leading AEC disaster truck stopped behind the six-strand fence blocking the range road. Two men with wire-cutters jumped from the truck and snipped the twanging wires. The metal keep-out sign banged to the ground and was kicked aside. The truck rolled through the gap and the men swung aboard. Behind them was a curtain of dust rising sluggishly in the hot sky, marking the long convoy of other official vehicles pressing hard on the trail of the emergency truck. When the range road cut across the county highway, the driver paused long enough to see that the heaviest smoke concentration from the unknown blast lay to the west. He swung left onto the oiled road and barreled westward. In less than a mile, he spied the flashing red light of a state trooper's car parked in the center of the road. The scene looked like a combination of the San Francisco quake and the Los Angeles County Fair. Dozens of cars, trucks, Two fire engines and a good-humor man were scattered around the open rangeland on both sides of the vast crater, still smoldering in the road. A film of purple dust covered the immediate area and still hung in the air, coating cars and people. Scores of men, women, and children lined the rim of the crater, gawking into the smoky pit, while other scores roamed aimlessly around the nearby hill and desert. A young sheriff's deputy standing beside the state trooper's car raised his hand to halt the AEC disaster van. The truck stopped and the white-suited radiation team leaped from the vehicle, counters in hand, racing for the crater. Back! the chief of the squad yelled at the top of his lungs. Everybody get back! This area is radiation contaminated! Hurry! There was a second of stunned comprehension, and then a mad, pandemonic scrambling of persons and cars, bumping and jockeying to flee. The radiation team fanned out around the crater, fumbling at the level scales on their counters when the instruments failed to indicate anything more than normal background count. All of the vehicles had pulled back to safety, all except a slightly battered station wagon still parked a yard or two from the eastern edge of the crater. The radiation squad leader ran over to the wagon. Three people, two men and a dirty, disheveled and bloody-nosed older woman sat in the front seat, munching good humor bars. Didn't you hear me? The AEC man yelled. Get out of here! This area's hot, radioactive, dangerous! Get moving! The woman leaned out the window and patted the radiation expert soothingly on the shoulder. Shucks, Sonny. No need to get this excited over a little spilt milk. Milk? The AEC man yelped, purpling. Milk? I said this is a hot area. It's loaded with radiation. Look at this! He pointed to the meter on his counter, then stopped, gawked at the instrument and shook it, and stared again. 
The meter flicked placidly along at the barely above normal background level count. Hey, Jack! One of the other white-suited men on the far side of the crater called. This hole doesn't register a thing! The squad chief stared incredulously at his counter and banged it against the side of the station wagon. Still the needle held in the normal zone. He banged it harder, and suddenly the needle dropped to zero as Hetty and her ranch hands peered over the AEC man's shoulder at the dial. Now ain't that a shame, Barney said sympathetically. You done broke it. The rest of the disaster squad, helmets off in the blazing sun and lead-coated suits unfastened, drifted back to the squad leader at the Circle T station wagon. A mile east, the rest of the AEC convoy had arrived and halted in a huge fan of vehicles, parked a safe distance from the crater. A line of more white-suited detection experts moved cautiously forward. With a stunned look, the first squad leader turned and walked slowly down the road towards the approaching line. He stopped once and looked back at the gaping hole, down at his useless counter, shook his head, and continued on to meet the advancing units. By nightfall, new strands of barbed wire reflected the last rays of the red Nevada sun. Armed military policemen and AEC security police in powder-blue battle jackets patrolled the fences around the county road crater, and around the fence that now enclosed the immediate vicinity of the Circle T ranch buildings. Floodlights bathed the wire and cast an eerie glow over the mass of parked cars and persons jammed outside the fence. A small helicopter sat off to the right of the impromptu parking lot, and an NBC newscaster gave the world a verbal description of the scene while he tried to talk above the snorting of the gas-powered generator that was supplying the Associated Press radio telephone link to San Francisco. Back at AEC, vans and dun-colored military vehicles raced to and from the ranch headquarters, pausing to be cleared by the sentries guarding the main gates. The AP log recorded 118 major daily papers using the AP story that afternoon and the following morning. Carson City, Nevada, May 12th, AP. A kiloton eggnog rocked the scientific world this morning. On a Nevada ranch, forty miles east of here, sixty-year-old Mahatabel Thompson is milking a cow that gives milk more powerful than an atomic bomb. Her chickens are laying the triggering mechanisms. This the world learned today when an earth-shaking explosion rocked. End of Part One of Make Mine Homogenized by Rick Raphael